Welcome to Central Line, the AHA podcast. This is the official podcast of the American Animal Hospital Association, dedicated to simplifying the journey towards excellence in veterinary medicine for every member of the veterinary team. Here's your host, Dr. Katie Berlin. Hi, welcome back to Central Line. I'm your host, Katie Berlin, and my guest today is Dr. Bonnie Bragdon. Bonnie, welcome to Central Line. Yes, thank you for having me today, Katie. We've met one time in person, had a great conversation um, at AVMA, and so I've really been looking forward to this recording. I have a feeling you and I could talk about pretty much anything. Yes, for but, hours. Uh, yes, <laughs> but today we're going to be, this is a theme. I mean, uh, there's just, we, we attract talkers on this podcast, and I certainly am one, and it's great, um, because um, we have so much interesting stuff going on in vet med right now, and the topic that we have today is one I'm really excited about. Um, it is about empowering independent veterinary practices. Yeah. Yes, and yes. Um, we'll get into all sorts of stuff about that. But first, would you mind giving us a little idea of who you are and what you do? Yeah. So, uh, Dr. Bonnie Bragdon, um, I uh, went through vet school longer than I care uh, remember at The Ohio State University. <laughs> uh, my career path's been pretty uh, diverse, and so I've been in many fra- uh, many services within veterinary medicine right now. I'm really, really focused on uh, practice ownership. Uh, I serve as the president, and I am a co-founder of the Independent Veterinary Practitioners Association. I got started there as I was touring and helping practices across the Southeast with their decisions about making products, product decisions and what products to bring into the practice. And I really got to learn what was going on in the industry from the ground up. So very excited to be here today to to talk about independent practice ownership. Yeah. And before we get into that and uh, more about the Independent Veterinary Practitioners Association or the IVPA, as we'll call it today. Yes. Um, I do want to ask you a little bit about that, but uh, I wanted to ask you something personal first as an icebreaker. Um, we talk about, we, you know, on this podcast, we talk a lot about work. We talk a lot about vet med. And for a lot of us, I think our work and passions um, overlap a lot yes. and communities yes. overlap a lot. But do you have a third space, you know, where you don't have to be Bonnie the vet, um, where you can just sort of enjoy another activity or community that's outside the veterinary community? You know, that, that was a great icebreaker because it really, it took a lot of thinking because like you said, uh, I think being a veterinarian, it's like a calling. And so it infiltrates your entire world, which, which I'm happy. I think I'm of that generation where, uh, you know, my work is actually my play. Uh, but you do need to have some stress relief. And so, uh, that third space, uh, I enjoy being in is actually my horseback riding. I always joke, uh, you know, if you compare horseback riding to golf, I kind of do miniature golf, uh, the level of eventing <laughs> I like to do. But it's so funny because it just, it fully integrates my love of animals. And then I end up connecting with people who are business, small business people. Mm-hmm. And so I'm always talking vet med and small business uh, while I'm riding horses, which is absolutely fabulously fun. But hopefully they don't um, treat you always like a vet there. I've no, had that experience no, no. where at the no, barn, I'm like yeah. always treating the barn cats well, and stuff. And it can get a yeah. little bit, you know, sometimes you just want to turn it off, you know? Right. And you have to feel comfortable. And then for me, because I don't practice, it's kind of a very weird scenario. So you have mm. to be comfortable with people saying things like, oh, you're not a veterinarian anymore. Uh, so right. as you progress in your career and as you may move beyond clinical practice, you have to kind of remind people, yeah, I'm a veterinarian. I just serve animals in a different way and I help my peers and my colleagues. 
Um, but my close, my close barn friends know, uh, when to ask me for advice and when not to, but they will ask me like, they'll ask me about their own lab reports and, uh-huh. <laughs> and there's yeah. more stuff. And I'd say, well, if you were a dog or if this horse were a dog, <laughs> yeah. uh, that's usually how that conversation starts. Yeah. And that hopefully that draws the boundary that like, since you're not a dog, you should probably ask yes. a human being. <laughs> you might want to. You might yeah. want to. But, but um, I think that's what what's so great about veterinarians, though, is because I think we have such broad education, we can really help people translate medical mm-hmm. uh, yeah. stuff into everyday. Hey, what do I do about this? And I think physicians yeah. aren't so great at husbandry, whereas yes. <laughs> veterinarians are very, very good at husbandry, whether it's the human species or the canine or the feline or the equine species. So that's true. Yeah. yeah. I don't think physicians are trained a lot to talk about that no. in ways that are approachable to people. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, well, that's great. I'm a yeah. horse person too. Um, Ooh. I've been on hiatus, but I'm hopefully just getting back into it after a vacation that kind of Very nice. um, reminded me how much I miss it. So, yes. um, all right, well, let's get into it. Um, yeah. Can you talk a little bit about the IVPA and what led you to want to help start that? Yeah, so uh, really, I'll kind of start with our logo. Sounds kind of like a weird place to start, but uh, and the I is a really important part of that logo. And it, and it doesn't just have to do with the idea that we're independent practices and independent owners. It also has to do with the idea that those community practices are actually pillars of our communities. Mm. And so I got passionate about this idea when I was traveling all over the Southeast to support uh, a sales force and technical services. And I would go to a clinic and we'd start to work on maybe a project of, you know, how do we, how do we sell more flea and tech to our, our clients to make sure our patients are well cared for We'd start a project and then I'd learn, no, that project's not going anymore because the practice has been sold to corporate. And, you know, there were all kinds of reactions. There were folks who had, uh, you know, who were crying and then there were folks who thought it was great. And then so I, I got to kind of obs- observe corporatization firsthand and how that affected teams and how the team members varied. Some teams were very successful and some weren't so successful in how they uh, transitioned to a corporate practice. Uh, that got me very interested in this idea that especially in, you know, rural areas or underserved areas, that veterinary practice serves as a pillar of the community where that veterinarian, uh, you know, offers huge potential when it comes to career development within the community. You know, now folks who live in that area may have a choice between working as a receptionist or a technician and having a career and a profession versus working for, um, you know, Walmart or a convenience store. Nothing wrong with working for those types of businesses, but folks who really want to stay connected to their community, maybe want to have more of a profession and a career, uh, those practices really offer more than just clinical services. They're Mm -hmm. a huge part of the fabric of that community. So that's that's kind of a long story. Um, I always talk about my path being always a, a long path, not just mentally and emotionally, but also in terms of mileage. Um, but that's what inspired me to, to co-found uh, the, the IVPA. I love that. I love how much thought went into that logo too, the I as a pillar, um, because that really is true. And that's what we, I feel like I'm old enough that at least before I went to vet school, you know, we all learned that veterinarians were part of a, like a trusted member of the community. And then I was sort of on the cusp of, of, all the corporatization we've been seeing. And so it's just grown so exponentially that I feel like um, this isn't 
a dig on corporate practices, but when the owner is living thousands of miles away, for instance, and is a team, uh, you know, of people with a CEO and stuff, it's going to have a different feel. And, um, and that, that really changed, I think, how veterinarians fit into a lot of communities. And, um, and so uh, some of us are kind of like, wait, they told us that we were going to be James Harriet type, and we ended yeah. up um, being, you know, sort right. of like a, a worker in a, a much larger system. Right. Um, but you know, like like you said, some practices have been really successful um, after they've gone corporate, and others haven't. And I, as the co-founder of the IVPA, um, I wanted to know. You know, clearly, you think there's a, a really big place for independently owned practices, but what about corporate practices? Is there room for both in our ecosystem? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that having both, uh, I always, I don't think, I don't think I created this term. I think I stole it from somebody, but (laughs) the idea that, you know, we're all part of an ecosystem and large practices do certain things well and small independently owned practices do things well too. A corporate practice is never going to have, uh, like we talked about, uh, previously, is never going to have a practice devoted to bucking bulls in Texas, yeah. right? <laughs> yes. So that, that space is always going to be owned by an independent veterinary-owned um, practice. Um, but my daughter uh, actually has a Banfield wellness plan, and she loves her wellness plan because she's young and she's mobile and she's lived all across the country, and she feels like that plan allows her to take her care uh, with her no matter where she goes. Mm. Um I think that so, so some clients will really, uh, embrace the idea of, of a corporate practice and how they receive care. And then some veterinarians will really want to be a part of the corporate practice. So there's pros and cons to both. I think really what is I'm very passionate about. And I think our board is passionate about is this idea that everybody should have choice. So a customer should have a choice in how they receive care. And a veterinarian and the healthcare team. I think too many times we leave out uh, technicians and assistants out of this For conversation, sure. but the entire professional team should have a choice in where they work. And so it needs to be for it to be healthy for both caregivers and professionals as well as clients. It needs to be a balanced ecosystem. So it's not all just corporate and, um, you know, not all just James Harriet. Because if we stop and think about what James Harriet provided, James Harriet couldn't take care of all of the growth that we've had, right? So James Harriet could no longer serve, you know, a community like Atlanta, you know, where we have millions of pets that that just can't be cared for by one individual um, or, or even a multitude of independent practices. So there's value to both. And I'm not, what, what I'm really passionate about and Katie, what I hope we really think about as a profession is we have an opportunity right now we're at a crossroads where we have an opportunity to really be mindful and creative um, and thoughtful about how our profession progresses and what direction it goes in. And if we can keep that uh, conversation going and the ecosystem balanced, I think that's what's going to work best for everybody. Yeah, that's a really great point. Um, and I hope we can do that as a community. You know, it seems like a lot of people just feel sort of like they're facing this beast, this you know, because yes, I feel that way too sometimes. Yeah. I mean, and, and it's really hard because everybody's going to want to do what's, what's right for them, Absolutely. what's best for them. And so corporates, you know, consolidators are going to want to buy up successful practices. 
And the owners of those successful practices often feel like they don't have a choice because as a person, I can't get a loan that competes with what right. a Mars can offer, for instance, um, for a successful practice. And it's their retirement. It's their, their livelihood, the yeah. rest, the yeah. thing they've spent their whole life building. And so how, how can we get through that? How can we yeah. sort of change that rhythm? Yeah. And so the first thing I want to say is I perceive at times when I talk to veterinarians who've sold to corporate that they feel like maybe I'm being critical or I'm saying, no, you shouldn't have sold to, to, to corporate. And I would hope anybody who sold uh, a practice to corporate feels very good about themselves, right? Because mm -hmm. they have built a practice that is very successful. And now a larger organization wants to take that on and continue what they've built and they've developed, maybe not in the same path, maybe not the same legacy, but they've been successful and they've contributed to the profession and they've taken care of their family and themselves. So first and foremost, we all need to take care of ourselves because like we always say, if you don't take care of yourselves financially yeah, and, and so much in veterinary medicine, we talk about taking care of ourselves from a wellness standpoint, emotionally, uh, professionally, ethically, we tend not to talk about finances. I'm not sure why, but let's just hate that. <laughs> you, you know, you talking have about to, money. <laughs> you have to, you have to, you have to take care of yourself financially yeah. and, and take care of yourself, your family financially and plan for your financial growth, or you can't take care of all those other parts and pieces. So first and foremost, I would like anybody and everybody who sold to corporate if you somehow, for some reason, feel some sort of guilt, please don't. I mean, you've take, you've done a wonderful job taking care of yourself and you've contributed to the profession and we're glad to have you. And we, we hope you don't feel any kind of lingering guilt because that's certainly not where I'm coming from. Yeah. But we are at, so I feel a lot of stress about this topic day in and day out. Embrace the suck, embrace the stress because every, every place where there is disruption, there is opportunity. So right now, uh, you know, I've listened to a lot of Bloomberg radio and they talk about, you know, it doesn't matter if the markets are going up or if they're going down, they're only looking for movement because where there's movement is where there's opportunity. So my point behind that is we, we, you know, I came a little bit earlier than, than you where there wasn't much movement. And I think we complained about that because there was this just this uh, pathway to ownership where you became an associate, you bought into that practice, you bought it. And that was kind of your path. And there really weren't uh, many banks that were offering lending. And, and, and I was kind of caught up in that. Like I had a really hard time. I wasn't able to get uh, traditional lending because of the, the way that um, lenders didn't view veterinarians and, and the way we bought into practices as a successful way for um, growth and development. On the other hand, right now, it would be very easy to think, oh, the only path is to go to work for a corporate. Well, what I would like everybody to think about is think about how many new veterinary schools are now opening. Think about the demand that we cannot, we cannot keep up with the demand right now. Now, yes, that demand is changing in that, you know, we can't always, um, there's some issues around costs that are driving some inadequate or, or unbalanced access to care, but there's huge opportunity there, right? So, um, if you're a veterinarian who's just entering practice now, or if you're early career or mid career, or maybe you're a baby veterinarian who hasn't even been born, like we have huge opportunity. And, um, so as you start your practice, whatever that may mean, you have a choice. 
you can start your practice in such a way that you're going to grow it and sell it to corporate because corporates are going to continue to need growth and development. You can create a practice that just suits your, your life, right? You create your practice that's going to take care of you for your life. Um, and maybe all it is is that you've owned your little niche like bucking bulls and deer reproduction. And there is no intent on selling that practice. It's, it's just takes care of you for your lifetime. Or maybe you're somewhere in between where you create a practice that you are going to sell and kind of bequeath and have uh, a new veterinarian come in and um, carry on for you. So a little bit all over the place in that, but the idea is that we are at a perfect spot for us to have these conversations and you can create your destiny as a veterinarian and, and create whatever kind of legacy and practice that takes care of you over your lifetime. I always love it when people in a, you know, who, who are asked a difficult question because I, you know, that's a hard question. Like, how are we going to yeah. get past the fact that vets feel like their only exit plan um, if they own a practice is to sell to corporate because they're going to get the most money for the practice, most likely, if they do that. Um, but I love how you phrase it as an opportunity because um, sometimes the most money isn't necessarily the win, um, although, of course, it's hard to look past that. Um, but what about like, do you think we, we sell ourselves short when it comes to the ability to get loans to buy practices, existing practices? Uh, yeah. <laughs> so, um, I do am, we give up before we start. You know? Yeah. So what I do want to say is I have to make a quick disclaimer because I now work first for first financial bank as a loan officer. So, uh, Twofold disclaimer. One, the bank wants to let you know that I am not representing them yeah. right now. So I don't want <laughs> yep. to say anything that would get them in trouble, but I also want the audience to know that that's part of my job and I, I, I benefit financially if, if uh, somebody um, gets a loan through me. Um, but one thing that I would want to say is that yes, veterinarians have huge amounts of opportunity and in, in getting lending. Um, and to kind of back the conversation up a little bit is this idea that I think that if we, every, veterinarian is like Disney world, right? We imagineer what we want. So I like to talk to veterinarians about these types of things. And when I talk to them, I start the conversation. If I could wave a magic wand, what would your life be like? And if you wave that magic wand and you imagineer what your life would be like your professional and personal life, and you have that understanding, okay, this is what perfect is. And then once you know what perfect is, you then think about the finances of how am I going to realize perfection? And then after that, then once you put the financial piece behind it, then you can kind of think about uh, what path you're going to take. So if my life, my, my perfect life is to, you know, have very well defined hours of operation where I don't want to really, I don't want to manage a team. I don't want to manage the financials. I just want to clock in, clock out. Okay, well then let's think about what corporate practice meets your needs. But if I want to be able to translate my medical values and profession into um, exactly the practice I want, because I want to either you know, I want to take care of bucking bulls or I want to take care of um, reproductive needs of deer and trophy bucks, or I want to have maybe a very family focused practice where I focus very specifically on families and what they need and maybe underserved populations. Okay, well, then I can create that. I then back it up to look at what the KPIs and the financials are, what, and, and I consider how much money I need to make and how I need, can be sustainable in that lifestyle. 
And then once you put the financials behind that, then you can think about what lending you need. And I promise you, you can pretty much get uh, the lending that you need. Um, I, I personally have had some barriers to lending and I unfortunately didn't do my research to understand how I could make that work and find the loan that made sense to me. Um, and so you just need to keep talking and networking um, to make sure you can find the lending that suits you. But it starts off with a vision of, and it's kind of overwhelming and it doesn't need to be, but it starts off with a vision of who I am, what I stand for ethically, medically, professionally. And then it, the second uh, step is to understand what financials I need in order to make that happen. And then the third piece is starting to talk to lenders and real estate people and construction people to find out how I'm all going to make that work. So it sounds exciting to be able to say, okay, what, like, if I can dream it, I can create it. Yes. Which is really, that's really empowering. Um, And I was, you're talking a lot about people starting their own practice, you know, using their own vision to create something. What about if people find a practice they want to buy? Do you usually recommend that people start up rather than buy an existing practice? Yes. So again, there's value, there's I'm one of those people. So I have to back up and say, at one point, my, my daughter said to me, mom, what's your favorite color? And I said, oh, there are so many beautiful <laughs> colors. How can you choose one? So it's and she, always, it depends. It always, and so it's not that it depends because I'm not willing to give an answer, but it depends because there are pros and cons yeah. of each. And so everybody should feel excited that um, we have so many options and choices can be very, very overwhelming. Like I have a hard time ordering things at Starbucks, um, but you just <laughs> I would get the eat. same thing that takes care of that. <laughs> right. Right. But you make your list of pros and cons for each. You talk to a lot of people to understand what their opinions are, and then you're able to move forward. So, you know, the pros of starting your own practice are you get to create it from the ground up. You might be able to do a little bit more in terms of bootstrapping. Um, the difficulties and the cons behind that are that, you don't always know how your revenue and your income is going to go. And there are lots of bumps and bruises along the way. And you have to be very resilient to make sure you're driving that vision forward and you are uh, ready uh, for any setbacks in revenue um, and, and you feel prepared for that. Um, but you have more control over what you're creating and the path that you're taking. And you can start off maybe sometimes incrementally um, with sometimes with lower debt um, as you create that vision of what you want. It's kind of similar, on the other hand, uh, to, to acquiring a practice. Uh, the pros are that you have history of what that, that practice is capable of producing for revenue. You have a built-in clientele. Um, so you know how that practice is going to perform. And sometimes lending might be a little more clear and a little easier because you can go back and historically say, well, I know that this, if I can, as long as keep up with the previous owner, that I can create this amount of revenue. And so you have a better understanding of what your compensation is going to be on the difficult side, the cons, if you will. Sometimes you're locked into a clientele that might not be open to your way of practicing. Um, and if you change that up, then your historical data can kind of go out the window. Um, so, but you have, um, again, a little bit more um, idea of what the historicals are going to be like. Um, so different set of bumps and bruises and different set of um, pitfalls and barriers that you're going to have to be prepared to overcome and deal with. And so what I do want to say is, is that oftentimes you'll talk to lenders and you'll talk to real estate agents and you'll talk to all these great people who are so enthusiastic and 
so ready to support you as they should be. And you should really get, let that uh, enthusiasm and that passion carry you through. Just be prepared for, okay, I've closed down my business loan. Now what? <laughs> you know, and, and so like so many things uh, in life, sometimes there can be a dip after you've closed and a dip in energy, maybe some barriers and obstacles you didn't prepare for. And so that's why having your network of advisors can be really helpful, making sure that you have potentially some cash on hand, um, whether it's through uh, your business lending or your savings um, that can carry you through and knowing that you are going to get through that. You got through vet school, you got through all of the disruptions and all of the barriers and problems and issues that went through getting uh, and becoming a, a veterinarian that if you're prepared and you think through it and you know you you can make it, you're going to get through those dips just fine. But just be prepared, be prepared that oftentimes there are dips in energy, uh, belief, uh, money, the whole nine yards, and you just, just need to know that you're going to get through it. This AHA podcast is brought to you by Care Credit. Care Credit understands that all veterinary teams are busier than ever. To help patients get the care they need, the Care Credit Health and Pet Care Credit Card allows clients to access a budget-friendly financing experience anytime from anywhere on their own smart device. They can learn, see if they pre-qualify, apply, and even pay if approved, all on that smart device. With just a tap, they have a friendly, contactless way to pay over time for the services and treatments their pet needs, whether it be a general, referring, or specialty hospital, as long as they accept the Care Credit credit card. That makes so much sense that like you get through that dreaming phase and then you sell your dream to a lender and the lender yes. buys it and is like, absolutely, I will lend you money. And then you have the money, yes. you know, the promise of this money and you're like, oh God, now I have to do it. <laughs> yes, yes. And it can be very overwhelming, you know, yeah. like you've, you've built your whole vision on one particular veterinarian. You, you yeah. have a veterinarian who's going to come work with you or, or one particular location or, you know, you've kind of built this whole vision around one cornerstone. And if the cornerstone happens to crumble, then you need to be prepared to find a new one or rebuild or pivot. You know, um, I've heard other folks say, you know, it's all about business. And so as you're looking to, you know, I struggled. Uh, so years ago, I really wanted to buy a business, a practice that would allow me to do what I like to do, which is management and business and less clinical and um, less practice. And I kept getting beaten up by corporate and corporate just kept, you know, beating me out on the price, um, pricing of it. And so I decided to go a different route, route and I bought a business that is not clinical. It's actually selling, uh, scrubs and uniforms. So I, I help healthcare providers in a different way and it, it scratches that itch, uh, for ownership, mm -hmm. um, while I'm still able to help veterinarians. And so being resilient and flexible and adaptable, and knowing that there's always an option and there's always a path forward, uh, you just have to think about it and create it. Love that. I, that's really interesting that you, you, as you say, scratch that ownership itch in a different way. Um, because I, I feel like there's a, a stereotype about vets in, you know, the millennial generation and later that they don't want to own and they're not entrepreneurial. They just want to come to work and do their jobs. And I, 
I don't know how, like, I hear a lot of differing opinions on that, but I definitely feel like for the most part, when I'm on VIN, for instance, and I'm reading the VIN boards, you know, most of the, um, the more experienced practice owners, we'll say that, um, are, you know, say no, no one wants to buy my practice. Like no one wants to own anymore. Do you think that's true? Um, I, I think what's happened is, is that ownership and in top and being an entrepreneur has been redefined by the millennial millennial generation. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and I know, and again, it's not fair for me to speak to a generation I'm not a part of, but kind of from my looking at it, I, I think the exact opposite. I think what's happening is, is that they're redefining what it means to be an mm. entrepreneur and they're redefining what it means to be a small business owner. And it's very overwhelming, even for somebody like me who kind of has a few things figured out as to what it all looks like. And so right now, you know, it could be very overwhelming for somebody to come in and want to assume somebody else's vision of, of what it means to be a practice owner. Um, so, you know, right now it can be very overwhelming for everybody because there are a lot of startups, but when sometimes when we think about startups, I mean, we think about these corporate entities that have private equity and mm -hmm. you know, they just have, you know, that's a huge different animal of that type of startup where you're looking at starting, you know, with the idea of your vision and your exit plan being, you know, making hundreds of millions of dollars. Right. So we have that corporate startup and I see a few veterinarians out there doing that where they are coming in and they're imagining their exit as being starting a national national business that at the end of the day, the exit strategy in the next five to 10 years is to sell for hundreds of millions of dollars. Yeah. And then I see people who are hyper, hyper focused on a hyper niche business where again, I'm being repetitive, but the idea is I'm only going to serve the needs of bucking um, bulls or mm -hmm. I'm going to be a mobile practice. And I think I can do ambulatory and home practice very differently. And I'm going to keep that business very small and very focused. And then in the middle is kind of that traditional, well, I'm going to become a partner and work my way through and then acquire, um, you know, a, a small business. And that's where I hope that new veterinarians, early veterinarians, mid-career, whoever, wherever you are in your career, that you're out there being creative, you're getting yourself educated, and you're listening to the conversation. So again, you can define what it is that that you think ownership is. And I would really like to redefine ownership. And I, and I have to give credit to uh, Dr. Arnie Goldman, who ran for president of the AVMA most recently this past July. Because his idea is that as veterinarians, we own veterinary medicine. You, we as licensed practitioners, we own the relationship with that client and with that, with that, that, uh, patient. So it doesn't matter if you work for a corporation or if you work for yourself. We own that relationship. And whether you, uh, get compensated from a corporate practice because you're managing your ownership of that relationship through a corporate practice or you've decided to start your own business, uh, ownership is all about leadership. It's all about, um, you know, I'm going to own my profession and how I operate within my profession in my way and my vision. And then how I get compensated is a function of kind of legal structures and how you want to define all that. So I really, again, I've kind of come back to a very convoluted conversation, but I really, really, really would implore veterinarians to redefine ownership and what that means. That's a really great point. Um, 
that younger generations, younger graduates um, are seeing like relief is a lifestyle that was yes. barely, I feel like a relief that was really, really uncommon um, a while back. You know, it's really hard to find one. And when you found one, it was kind of like they were, you know, they were doing it part time or they were, you know, they yeah. it was kind of like something they did on the side. And now it's like, people are really going full force into the relief lifestyle and saying, well, this could be my career. Yeah. And, um, and that, that is very entrepreneurial. That's saying, I want to be the boss of my life. Um, it also seems like we've put a really a premium on time as compensation, which I feel like the old yes. s- sort of what we consider old school generation yeah. now um, did not do. You know, they were doing surgery at 3 a.m. because someone knocked on the clinic door and they lived right. upstairs, you know, and um, and that just is not we see time as something we can't get paid enough for, you know. Right. Um yeah, so, and, which and, is discouraging if you want to own a practice and have kind of like the traditional model of like, I'm owned by this building and these responsibilities and nobody shares it with me and I have to be here all the time. Well, and again, that's where I really, really hope that whoever you are and whatever you're yeah. wanting to do, uh, whether you're a new generation, older generation, where we just get really creative about how um, how we want to manage our lives and what value we place on time. And that yeah. changes throughout your life, right? That's mm-hmm. another thing I, I want people to understand. Um, being a bit older, uh, you know, it's funny because earlier in my career, I, I have to admit, I sacrificed time with my family in order to build my practice. But then that changed. And then I spent time working for larger corporations. And then I was able to devote more time uh, to my family. And now that my family's kind of, uh, you know, up and running on their own and, and, you know, they're, they're out there doing their own thing and they don't necessarily have time for me. Now I am putting more time into my profession and my career. So I think that we, again, should be plastic and flexible and, um, know that that's going to change throughout our lifetime, um, that your need for time might change. Um, and so for, I'm going to give you a really, uh, concrete for instance. And so I, have a retail store and I like to give my managers autonomy. And so I gave them a directive over the weekend, which was, um, do you, if, if we're, I'm going to give you an incentive. If you help me build the store and get new clients and get new business, I'm going to give you, um, a reward. And that reward is, is do you want to put cash in your pocket? In which case you guys will get a bonus or a commission based on how much business you've brought or do you want more time? Do you want Saturdays off? And if you want Saturdays off, then what I'll do is, is I will hire a person that will give you more time off. And that's all financial, right? And, and we, when that's what I would like everybody on listening to this understand that we all have to, we have to make choices because none of us are, have unlimited wealth. That's just not the way the world works. And so I own a retail business and the business that the the money that that business makes has to support all of the decisions we make as a team. And because the business is not producing the amount of revenue, it should, if the team put, pulls together, increases the revenue that that business makes, then I've given them a choice. Do you want money in your pocket or do you want time off? And that's not me putting the screws to anybody. It's, it's, the business only has so much uh, resources it can dedicate to giving you compensation. 
So you have to kind of choose where you want to take your compensation and that it doesn't have to be permanent. It, and it changes over time and it should change over time as your life uh, changes. So that's where having a process of starting out with, okay, my vision today is this is what I want. This is how I want to lead my life. Then financially, what compensation do you need and how are we going to make that happen? And then you build your business around that. So for instance, if you like, um, you know, if you like taking long appointments, you know, you want your appointment to be 60 minutes, well, then you have to charge a hundred to two hundred dollars per appointment. Um, so those are all the, the choices that we make, but starting off with your vision, how you, what your values are, starting off with a list of core values, and then you put the money behind it and then you, you build your business around it. That's, that's how we manage through that. That's, um, that's a perfect segue because I feel like that, that sort of, um, knocking together of like, you want to treat your employees well, and you want to give them a good quality of life and you want to keep them happy and keep them from leaving. But you also know that there's finite number of resources you can do to, to do that. You can use to do that. Um, and, I w- th- that segues into the next question that I was going to ask you, which is um, about staff. You know, we, yes. w- we cannot have this conversation without talking about competition for what yes. seems like a very limited number of people who are qualified to do right. veterinary work, um, at least especially credential technicians and veterinarians. Um, and, it, you know, if you're, if you're on any message boards anywhere, you see everybody saying, well, I can't compete with corporate. You know, they're offering so much money, $100,000 sign on bonuses retention bonuses, benefits I can't give. But you're talking about flexibility as a benefit, not even just like, hey, you know, we have a we have a better culture or a different quality of life, but that we're going to give you a choice. And that seems like a key to keeping and attracting team members. Yeah. Well, and it's interesting because we started off this conversation a couple of questions ago with the idea that we value our time more than money. Mm hmm. So I believe that to be Some true. Some people I, do. Yeah. But in the veterinary profession, based on my interactions with a lot of veterinarians and technicians and healthcare providers, I really do believe that veterinary healthcare providers, doesn't matter if they're technicians, practice managers, or veterinarians, that first and foremost, their number one driver is their dedication to animals. Yeah. Secondly, is their ability to manage stress and have flexibility and manage their life in the way they want to. And then thirdly is money. Now we all feel so remember, we, we also talked about the idea that we hate talking about finances. Well, mm-hmm. because we hate talking about finances and we feel like it's somehow a dirty word, like we've gotten ourselves into this position where somehow money becomes a driver, but that's not our core values. So that's why there's this disconnect. And that's why we, we have so much stress because, you know, our core values are not financial and yet we get ourselves into the situation where finances are driving the conversation. So that's why it's really, really important to sit down, do your budget, understand what compensation you personally or even you, the person who's coming to work for you, what they need from a budget and a compensation standpoint, and then start to list out your core values of this what's, is what is important to me. So. Yes, corporate can offer a lot of those financial factors when it comes to compensation. However, independence, 
can really offer a whole lot more flexibility and adaptability. We talked about being flexible, resilient, and adaptable. So I'm going to give you a very concrete, for instance, that occurred to me. So the the non-practice business I bought is selling uniforms and scrubs and offering embroidery, custom embroidery. So my embroiderers are similar to veterinarians. I cannot do embroidery. (laughs) I'm not going to go do embroidery. So my embroiderers are as important to me and my business as veterinarians are to veterinary practice. So recently, my I had an embroiderer who um, needed to go out on leave for pregnancy. And so she actually, uh, we, we thought July 27th was the date. Turned out July, you know, little uh, Lily decided it was July 3rd <laughs> and not July uh, 27th. And so this embroiderer has worked for me for about two years. She taught herself embroidery. She uh, is very dedicated to us because we've been very dedicated to her. So when she told me that she was she was using Uber to get to work two years ago, I said, you know what? I can afford to give you a $1,000 loan so you can buy a car so your finances improve. So we lent her the money. She bought herself a car. We, we took out, we did payroll deduction so that she could get to work and her finances would improve. And it was a risk because she could have left and I could have lost that thousand dollars. So then when uh, she decided to teach herself embroidery so she could improve her lot in life. And then what happened is, is when we learned she was pregnant, um, we, uh, we managed through that by creating a system where we had uh, a way that she could work from home. And the way that she worked from home is that she does all the digital aspects of embroidery from home. And then she um, manages other embroiders to get stuff done. So we created this whole network for helping her stay flexible in her life that she could continue to work from for us. Um, so when she was off um, and she had to be out, we hired a subcontractor to get that work done and then when little, so literally she, <laughs> she was planning and due on a Thursday and she was, she had her appointment at nine o'clock on Thursday morning. She was going to go to her OBGYN and get induced Wednesday at six o'clock, the Wednesday before that at six o'clock at night, she was in our shop getting the embroidery machines working so that our other embroiderer could get stuff done. So it's that relationship where mm-hmm. You help them, they help you, and I tear up about it because I can't function without her and she can't function without me. And I really hate it when I get this way. But that's, a corporate could never have done that for her. And so when she, so I said, I gave her an option. I'm like, I can give you two weeks of maternity leave paid or we can spread that out. I can have you do part-time work from home and we can spread that out. So for 30 days, she got paid maternity leave. Part of that was her vacation time. Part of that was working from home. And now she's she's starting to work back full time. And because I can be flexible in all these different things, uh, she can maintain her um, life, uh, have time with her baby. Um, thank God for her sister and her boyfriend and all, all these players. We create all of this network. And, you and so know again, that because you know her. As a person. Because I know her, right? Mm-hmm. So that's what's, and it's crazy <laughs> to have to sort through these things. But if she had worked for a corporate retailer 
She mm-hmm. would have had to terminate her employment. Um, she wouldn't have had a great deal of difficulty coming back. We would have had a great deal of difficulty replacing her. Um, but then that comes back to that whole thing of compensation versus time. And she, both she and I in the end are going to do better financially because we were able to work through all of this complexity. Whereas a corporate wouldn't have been able to work through that. So it's kind of a long drawn out story, but the idea is, is if you get to know your core staff, you're flexible, you work with them, then they're oftentimes going to choose that flexibility and the time Mm -hmm. and being able to manage their life over compensation. Well, and I mean, I love that you just teared up telling that story because, uh, you know, uh, a corporate supervisor might tear up from frustration at not right, being able right. to give somebody what they need because there are many people who work for large corporations who care just as deeply, but they cannot, they yes. don't have the independence to make those decisions. And right. then they're not only saying goodbye to somebody that they may really love as a human, but also then they're in a really tough position because they've lost somebody that they know they could have kept if they'd been able to offer them a little bit more flexibility and they have to hire somebody new. Right. And like, like, yes, you had to go through some, you know, some sort of backbends there to make sure that she was taken care of and she had what she needed. But then you did not have to go through the much more excruciating backbend yes. of having to find somebody yes. who you like even half as much. And, right, that, right, right. and I don't know how it is to find embroiderers, but finding a credential technician, for example, yes. I mean, that's like, that's the worst game of limbo there is, you know, is trying yes. to find um, a wonderful well, technician. There just aren't, they're, they're just, they seem to be absent when you're right, looking. Right. And so the other thing that, that and so while retail business, uh, you know, I, I can hire anybody off the street, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, that part of it's a little bit easier, but what we have found um, is really building a pipeline, right? Mm-hmm. So this person's worked for us for two years. She started off as um, retail um, and then um, just con- continuously spending my spending time to get to know somebody, um, spending the time to develop and help them. Sometimes it's even a financial risk. Um, so just have that expectation of building your pipeline is the best way to get staff. So thinking two and three years ahead down the road. Um, so thinking long-term about developing from within first. Second, understanding that you are going to have to overhire at times, which doesn't mm-hmm. affect your financial ability. But when you overhire, um, kind of those folks who aren't going to fit in or aren't really committed are going to kind of weed themselves out um, and they're going to leave. And then just being available to constantly being developed, to being able to develop those folks um, long term. And then I like to pair up experienced people with less experienced people. So we're constantly developing and growing, right? Mm. So, um, so this individual who was my embroiderer, uh, she started out as a sales clerk. She then, um, I put her in a position. She just was always willing to do more. And then I put her in a position as, um, managing the store, which she struggled with and we all struggled with. And then she was, willing to do embroidery and teach herself embroidery. So it's this constant, you always have to constantly be uh, flexible and shifting and focusing and understanding where somebody might fit. And her, her being a manager of the store was probably not her best fit. 
And so understanding that wasn't her best fit and then allowing her to go into something new and allowing people, giving them projects, allowing them to try something new um, so they can try out skill sets before you, you kind of dunk them full level into something new mm. because everybody has a skill set that you need in that practice and you just need to discover where their talents lie and give I, them an opportunity. Well, and I love that the way you put that, you know, demonstrates that growth, professional growth doesn't always equal going into management. Um, we've talked no. about that with other guests where like so many times the only path to advancement is becoming a team lead and it might just be the person who's been there the longest and, and needs a raise. And that's the way they're going to get a raise is to be in charge of people and not everybody is cut out for that job or wants it. Right. And so what I really, really love to do is I love to find ways for people to continue their growth and development. Right. And so in veterinary medicine, we have a ton of opportunity there. Right. Yeah. Uh, obviously, signing up for a conference or a CE or a certification is great. Encouraging that development outside of clinical practice is equally important. So mm -hmm. having somebody who might get training in, in uh, learning and development so they become a great trainer. So having somebody learn about inventory management so they can control inventory. Um, so you don't have to lead people. Uh, and then once they, you know, learn something maybe on their own through certification uh, and then giving them a special project. So I love giving people special projects because it's a way to try out a new skill set before they dive into actually taking responsibility for something. So for instance, um, like with the example for embroidery, what I might do is I might have a retail team member um, start to um, uh, organize our threads. Well, our threads are a mess. And that, that <laughs> for those of you who don't know anything about sewing or embroidery, that, that, that doesn't probably make sense to you. But literally, we have a walk-in closet full of threads, every color known to man, and they're falling all over the place. So a way to take that retail team member who maybe is trying to understand if they want to get into embroidery is to give them the, the job of organizing the thread closet. And then once they show that they have, you know, they may say, Oh my God, I never want anything to do with threads ever again. Well, there's my <laughs> sign that maybe right. you don't want to be embroidery, but if they're like, Oh my God, I had so much fun organizing this. I loved exploring all of the threads. I actually went online and learned this and that. And I went on YouTube to learn this and that. Then there's my sign that this person really is interested in learning more about embroidery. So therefore, I'm going to send her off to training and I'm going to pay for her to have training. And then she's going to cut backings and cut, uh, you know, do all these things for my master embroiderer. Um, so that I'm incrementally giving him or her the opportunity to learn more skill sets and experiment with a new job responsibility but without having them to say, well, you're now going to do, you know, you're now going to do anesthesia. You're now the anesthesia technician. Well, right. maybe <laughs> having that person shadow somebody, uh, giving them the space to shadow, giving them the space, maybe what they do is they pack surgery packs. They clean and pack surgery packs. And, and maybe the special project is I need you to inventory all of our instruments and if they successfully, you show that they're dedicated, they're committed, they can follow through, they'll finish up, they're self-driven. And if they don't inventory all your spay packs, no harm, no foul. The business hasn't gone over, a patient hasn't died, but they then have demonstrated either that is for them or it's not for them. So special projects, I think, is key to helping with learning and development. That's great advice. Um, I... 
I want to ask you now, wrapping up, um, being mindful of your time. So if there are, if there's one thing that you wish that um, veterinary professionals, particularly uh, veterinarians, because they tend to be the practice owners, but that's a, that's a yeah. generalization. There are places where technicians can own and non-veterinarians. But what do you wish that veterinarians knew about practice ownership in general? What I wish they knew about practice ownership is, is that you can create the ownership model that suits you and your Mm -hmm. lifestyle. And again, it's actually a straightforward process, not easy, but straightforward. It's not as confusing and as overwhelming as you think. First, you start off with your core values and how you want to practice professionally and medically and clinically and what your culture should be like, who you are as a leader. So you imagine here, create your vision. And then the next step, the second step is to think about what kind of compensation you have to have. You do your personal budget. I have to make this amount of money in order to live and be happy and exist in this world. And then you can apply the the finances um, and help you uh, create your business model so that you can own and you can have your life. You can have your life, your finances, and your profession that can all be balanced on this nice little tripod. Um, and if somebody needs help doing that, that's actually what I love to do. I love <laughs> to help somebody. Like I, I love to say, okay, let's imagine here what you want, and then let's put some um, uh, key performance measures and benchmarks around that. And then this is this is what your business model looks like in your budget, and this is how you can execute on that. Um, so if anybody wants to kind of connect with me, LinkedIn is a perfect place to do that. And I'm always happy to help people walk through uh, what it means to be a practice owner. We'll definitely link to to LinkedIn, your LinkedIn on the practice note or in the show notes here. And then um, also, where can people find out more about practice ownership? If there's a resource you recommend for practice ownership in general yeah. and the IVPA? Well, We'd love to have you check us out at iVeterinarians.org. Um, if you are a current practice owner, we have a lot of benefits to help keep practice ownership sustainable financially, um, uh, such as teleradiology services, a lot of other great services to help you um, uh, stay competitive uh, with corporates. Uh, you have inspired me that I don't think there's any one specific resource um, if you're uh, a newbie and you're looking to own, um, so actually, if you, you follow me on, on LinkedIn, I'm going to try to start to build out some of those resources uh, awesome. because there's so many resources. And so if you really are looking for resources, the next time you get to go to a trade show or a conference, make sure you go to the trade show and you go to the exhibit hall and uh, you interview a bunch of people, talk to mm. all the lenders, talk to all the distributors say, hey, you know, I'm interested in either buying or, or building a practice. How do you help new owners? Because you would be shocked at how many resources are available from all those folks uh, on the trade show. And they will give you lots of advice from people who have really good experience and knowledge and training. So uh, check us out on iVeterinarians.org. Uh, follow me on LinkedIn and then challenge yourself the next time you're at a conference. Make sure you hit up the trade show and talk to everyone. Everybody. <laughs> not not always veterinarians' favorite things to do, but at least if we have if we have a mission, right? And it's like, yes. okay, I'm starting to get a seed in my brain, and I have a I have a mission now to go collect information. That's something that we're very right. good at. <laughs> so it, you know, the funny thing is, is that one last piece of information that I would love every veterinarian to understand is that for the last ten plus years. 
maybe five years, because I don't want anybody to know how old I really am. But for a very long time and a very big part of my career, I've been on the other side. So I've been the one standing in the booth. And I promise you, for the most part, most salespeople, most people in a booth do not want to strong arm you into making a decision you don't want to make. Yeah. Now, there are a lot of enthusiastic little salespeople. And just think of that enthusiastic little salesperson or enthusiastic salesperson as a puppy dog, right? (laughs) You know, how many puppy dogs do you kneel down on the floor and they jump all over you and they're giving you kisses and they're knocking you over? And maybe it might even be a hundred pound little puppy, you know, (laughs) maybe a mastiff puppy. And you're like, you're just the, the little puppy is knocking you over and you're having a hard time standing up. If you think of a salesperson, is like a little puppy that just really wants to help you. And they're giving you all these kisses and they're knocking you down and they just want to talk and they just want to play. And you have complete control over the situation. So no matter how enthusiastic and potentially aggressive that salesperson feels like to you as a customer, you have control. You can walk away. All you have to do is say no. And most of those folks really are just being enthusiastic because they really love what they do and, and they want to help you in your quest to become the best, best veterinarian possible. And I have so many people say to me, do you, do you miss being a veterinarian? And I'm like, well, I still help animals. And so everybody on that trade show, most everybody there is enthusiastic about animals. They love veterinary medicine. They love animals. And the way they help animals is by helping veterinarians. And so just remember, they're enthusiastic puppy dogs that want to help you do the best you can do. And you can always say no. And if you have to have a stern voice and say no, have that stern voice and say no. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> now I'm going to I'm going to look at the expo hall in a whole new light. Next yeah. Time and, I go and to a conference. <laughs> challenge yourself. Challenge yourself to go talk to these people. Um, and again, if, if they just if it's getting uncomfortable, just think of them as being a, a a, a puppy who's trying to bite or nip or being overly aggressive and you just say, no, sit, no. <laughs> I, I think that's a perfect place to wrap up. Um, and that goes for, um, for support team members as well. Like, yes, you know, absolutely. you, there are many states where non veterinarians cannot own practices, but, um, when you're thinking about where to work, think about how much your time is worth to you. Yeah, and yeah. if you don't like, a a compensation plan that's being offered, you know, there's no harm in asking to see if if an independent owner will be flexible with you because in this climate, especially, um, they really need you. And if they want you as a human to be part of their practice culture, they will be flexible for you and think about ways to make it work. Yes. So you have power. Yes. Use it. Negotiate. Yes. All right. Thank you so much, um, Bonnie Bragdon. It's been a pleasure. Um, I'll put a bunch of links in the show notes so people can get access to your LinkedIn and to um, IVPA. And um, then hopefully they'll watch your feed for um, some more resources coming in the future. But um, I know there's a lot out there. So the biggest barrier seems to be allowing yourself to dream that this is possible. Hope. You have to have uh-huh. hope. There's a so. lot of hope. There's huge opportunity. Thanks to all of you for listening. We'll catch you next time on Central Line. Thanks for listening to today's episode of Central Line, the AHA podcast. If you love what you hear, please take a moment to leave us a rating and review. For more resources to help you simplify your journey towards excellence in veterinary medicine, we invite you to visit aha.org. That's A-A-H-A dot O-R-G.